Chapter Ten of Behind the Beyond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Behind the Beyond by Stephen Leacock. Chapter Ten. Parisian Pastimes: A Visit to Versailles. What said the man from Kansas, looking up from his asparagus? Do you mean to say that you have never seen the Palace of Versailles? No, I said very firmly, I have not. Nor the fountains in the gardens? No. Nor the battle pictures? No. And the hall of mirrors? added the fat lady from Georgia. And Madame du Barry's bed? said her husband. Her which? I asked with some interest. Her bed. All right, I said, I'll go. I knew, of course, that I had to. Every tourist in Paris has got to go and see Versailles. Otherwise, the superiority of the others becomes insufferable. With foreigners, it is different. If they worry one about palaces and cathedrals and such, the chateau at Versailles, and the Kaiserhof, and the Duomo at Milan, I answer them in kind. I ask them if they have ever seen the Schlitzerhof at Milwaukee, and the Anheuser Busch at St. Louis, and the Damo at Niagara, and the Tobago at Montreal. That quiets them wonderfully. But as I say, I had to go. You get to Versailles, as the best of various ways of transport, by means of a contrivance something between a train and a street car. It has a little puffing steam engine and two cars, double deckers, with the top deck open to the air and covered with a wooden roof on rods. The lower part inside is called the first class, and a seat in it costs ten cents extra. Otherwise, nobody would care to ride in it. The engine is a quaint little thing and wears a skirt, painted green, all around it, so that you can just see the tips of its wheels peeping modestly out below. It was a great relief to me to see this engine. It showed that there is such a thing as French delicacy after all. There are so many sights along the boulevards that bring the carmine blush to the face of the tourist, from the twisting of his neck and trying to avoid seeing them, that it is well to know that the French draw the line somewhere. The sight of the bare wheels of an engine is too much for them. The little train whirls its way out of Paris, past the great embankment and the fortifications, and goes rocking along among green trees whose branches sweep its sides, and trim villas with stone walls around quaint gardens. At every moment it passes little inns and suburban restaurants with cool arbors in front of them, and waiters in white coats pouring out glasses of red wine. It makes one thirsty just to look at them. In due time, the little train rattles and rocks itself over a dozen miles or so that separate Paris from Versailles and sets you down right in front of the great stone courtyard of the palace. There, through the long hours of a summer afternoon, you may feast your eyes upon the wonderland of beauty that arose at the command of the great monarch, Louis the Fourteenth, from the sanded plains and wooded upland that marked the spot two hundred fifty years ago. All that royal munificence could effect was lavished on the making of the palace. So vast was it in size that in the days of its greatest splendor it harbored ten thousand inmates. The sheer length of it from side to side is only about a hundred yards short of half a mile. 
To make the grounds, the king's chief landscape artist and his hundreds of workers labored for twenty years. They took in, as it were, the whole landscape. The beauty of their work lies not only in the wonderful terraces, gardens, groves, and fountains that extend from the rear of the chateau, but in its blending with the scene beyond. It is so planned that no distant house or building breaks into the picture. The vista ends everywhere with the waving woods of the purple distance. Louis the Fourteenth spent in all, they say, a hundred million dollars on the making of the palace. When made, it was filled with treasures of art not to be measured in price. It was meant to be, and it remains, the last word of royal grandeur. The king's court at Versailles became the sun round which gravitated the fate and fortune of his twenty million subjects. Admission within its gates was itself a mark of royal favor. Now any person with fifteen cents may ride out from Paris on the double-decked streetcar and wander about the palace at will. For a five-cent tip to a guide you may look through the private apartments of Marie Antoinette, and for two cents you may check your umbrella while you inspect the bedroom of Napoleon I. For nothing at all you may stand on the vast terrace behind the chateau and picture to yourself the throng of gay ladies in panniered skirts and powdered gentlemen in sea-green inexpressibles who walked along its groves and fountains two hundred years ago. The palace of the kings has become the playground of the democracy. The palace, or the chateau as it is modestly named, stands crosswise upon an elevation that dominates the scene for miles around. The whole building throughout is only of three stories, for French architecture has a horror of high buildings. The two great wings of the chateau reach sideways north and south, and one, a shorter one, runs westwards towards the rear. In the front space between the wings is a vast paved courtyard, the royal court, shut in by a massive iron fence. Into this court penetrated, one autumn evening in 1789, the raging mob led by the women of Paris, who had come to drag the descendant of the Grand Monarch into the captivity that ended only with the guillotine. Here they lighted their bonfires, and here they sang and shrieked and shivered throughout the night. That night of the 5th of October was the real end of monarchy in France. No one, I think, not even my friend from Kansas, who boasted that he had put in three hours at Versailles, could see all that is within the chateau. But there are certain things which no tourist passes by. One of them is the suite of rooms of Louis the Fourteenth, a great series of square apartments, all opening sideways into each other, with gilded doors as large as those of a barn, and with about as much privacy as a railway station. One room was the king's council chamber. Next to this, a larger one, was the wig room, where the royal mind selected its wig for the day, and where the royal hairdresser performed his stupendous task. Besides this again is the king's bedroom. Preserved in it, within a little fence, still stands the bed in which Louis the Fourteenth died in 1715, after a reign of seventy-two years. The bedroom would easily hold three hundred people. Outside of it is a great antechamber, where the courtiers jealously waited their turn to be present at the king's lever, or getting up, eager to have the supreme honor of holding the royal breeches. 
but if the king's apartments are sumptuous, they are as nothing to the hall of mirrors, the showroom of the whole palace, and estimated to be the most magnificent single room in the world. It extends clear across the end of the rear wing, and has a length of 236 feet. It is lighted by vast windows that reach almost to the lofty arch that forms its ceiling. The floor is of polished inlaid wood, on which there stood in Louis the Great's time, tables, chairs, and other furniture of solid silver. The whole inner side of the room is formed by seventeen enormous mirrors set in spaces to correspond in shape to the window opposite, and fitted in between with polished marble. Above them runs a cornice of glittering gilt, and over that again the ceiling curves in a great arch, each panel of it bearing some picture to recall the victories of the Grand Monarch. Ungrateful posterity has somewhat forgotten the tremendous military achievements of Louis the Fourteenth, the hardships of his campaign in the Netherlands, in which the staff of the royal cuisine was cut down to one hundred cooks, the passage of the Rhine, in which the king actually crossed the river from one side to the other, and so on. But the student of history can live again the triumphs of Louis in this hall of mirrors. It is an irony of history that in this room, after the conquest of 1871, the King of Prussia was proclaimed German Emperor by his subjects and his allies. But if one wants to see battle pictures, one has but to turn to the north wing of the chateau. There you have them, room after room, twenty, thirty, fifty rooms full, I don't know how many, the famous gallery of battles, depicting the whole military history of France from the days of King Clovis till the French Revolution. They run in historical order. The pictures begin with battles of early barbarians, men with long hair wielding huge battle-axes with their eyes blazing, while other barbarians prod at them with pikes or take a sweep at them with a two-handed club. After that are the rooms full of crusade pictures, crusaders fighting the Arabs, crusaders investing Jerusalem, crusaders raising the siege of Malta, and others raising the siege of Rhodes, all very picturesque, with the blue Mediterranean, the yellow sand of the desert, prancing steeds in nickel-plated armor, and knights plumed in caparisoned, or whatever it is, and wearing as many crosses as an ambulance emergency staff. All these battles were apparently quite harmless, that is the strange thing about these battle pictures. The whole thing, as depicted for the royal eye, is wonderfully full of color and picturesque, but as far as one can see, quite harmless. Nobody seems to be getting hurt, wild-looking men are swinging maces round, but you can see that they won't hit anybody. A battle-axe is being brought down with terrific force, but somebody is thrusting up a steel shield just in time to meet it. There are no signs of blood or injury. Everybody seems to be getting along finely, and to be having the most invigorating physical exercise. Here and there, perhaps, the artist depicts somebody jammed down under a beam, or lying under the feet of a horse. But if you look close, you see that the beam isn't really pressing on him, and that the horse is not really stepping on his stomach. In fact, the man is perfectly comfortable, and is, at the moment, taking aim at somebody else with a two-string crossbow, which would have deadly effect if he wasn't ass enough to aim right at the middle of a cowhide shield. 
You notice this quality more and more in the pictures as the history moves on. After the invention of gunpowder, when the combatants didn't have to be locked together, but could be separated by fields and little groves and quaint farmhouses, the battle seems to get quite lost in the scenery. It spreads out into the landscape until it becomes one of the prettiest, quietest scenes that heart could wish. I know nothing so drowsily comfortable as the pictures in this gallery that show the battles of the seventeenth century, the Grand Monarch's own particular epoch. This is a wide, rolling landscape, with here and there little clusters of soldiers to add a touch of color to the foliage of the woods. There are woolly little puffs of smoke rising in places to show that the artillery is at its dreamy work on a hillside. Near the foreground is a small group of generals standing about a tree and gazing through glasses at the dim purple of the background. There are sheep and cattle grazing in all the unused parts of the battle. The whole thing has a touch of quiet, rural feeling that goes right to the heart. I have seen people from the ranching district of the Middle West stand before these pictures in tears. It is strange to compare this sort of thing with some of the modern French pictures. There is realism enough and to spare in them. In the Salon exhibition a year or two ago, for instance, there was one that represented lions turned loose into an arena to eat up Christians. I can imagine exactly how a Louis XIV artist would have dealt with the subject, an arena prettily sanded, with here and there gooseberry bushes and wild gilly flowers, not too wild, of course, lions with flowing manes in noble attitudes about to roar, tigers finely developed about to spring, Christians just going to pray, and through it all a genial open-air feeling very soothing to the royal senses. Not so the artist of today. The picture in the salon is of blood. There are torn limbs gnawed by crouching beasts as a dog holds and gnaws a bone. There are faces being torn, still quivering, from the writhing body. In fact, perhaps after all there is something to be said for the way the Grand Monarch arranged his gallery. The battle pictures and the hall of mirrors and the fountains and so on are, I say, the things best worth seeing at Versailles. Everybody says so. I really wish now that I had seen them. But I am free to confess that I am a poor sightseer at the best. As soon as I get actually in reach of a thing, it somehow dwindles in importance. I had a friend once, now a distinguished judge in the United States, who suffered much in this way. He travelled a thousand miles to reach the World's Fair, but as soon as he had arrived at a comfortable hotel in Chicago, he was unable to find the energy to go out to the fairgrounds. He went once to visit Niagara Falls, but failed to see the actual water, partly because it no longer seemed necessary, partly because his room in the hotel looked the other way. Personally, I plead guilty to something of the same spirit. Just where you alight from the steam tramway at Versailles, you will find close on your right a little open-air café, with tables under a trellis of green vines. It is as cool a retreat of mingled sun and shadow as I know. There is red wine at two francs, and long-imported cigars of as soft a flavor as even Louis the Fourteenth could have desired. The idea of leaving a grotto like that to go traipsing all over a hot stuffy palace with a lot of fool tourists seemed ridiculous. 
but I bought there a little illustrated book called The Chateau de Versailles, which interested me so extremely that I decided that, on some reasonable opportunity, I would go and visit the place. End of chapter 10